Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. Today I'm joined by Keith Ashworth Lord, a fund manager who I've known for many years, a former analyst in the city who now runs a small but extremely successful small company and mid-cap investment fund called the Sanford Deland Buffetology Fund. The name of the fund reflects the fact that what Keith is trying to do in this portfolio is find and build a portfolio of about 30 securities listed in the UK that reflect the kind of valuation disciplines that Warren Buffett has sought to follow over the length of his long and extremely successful career. I think I'd like to start, Keith, by asking you about Buffettology. Obviously, that's a reference to Warren Buffett, the famous North American investor whose company, Berkshire Hathaway, is now one of the biggest uh, companies in in the United States and indeed globally. But I'd like to ask you what really it is about Buffett and his methods that uh, you understand by Buffettology or which parts of that method are you actually trying to apply in your Buffettology fund? Buffettology as an overarching theme means that when you're buying shares in, in companies, you're actually buying an ownership interest in a real business. You're not buying a gaming chip on a, on a casino table. Uh, therefore, the whole focus of whether to invest or not revolves around the quality of the business and the fact that the business has certain characteristics. What those characteristics are is right at the top, you want a business with what Buffett calls an economic moat. The first law of capitalism dictates that excess returns are competed away to the cost of capital. Ergo, if you've got a business that's consistently earning excess returns, be they excess returns on sales or, or more interestingly and more pertinently, excess returns on capital, you've got something very special that's keeping the opposition away from parking its tanks on your lawn. And these characteristics show up in various ways. They're usually associated with businesses that have some growth potential, either in their markets or themselves within those markets. Not always, but but usually. But some of the key factors are, number one, they generate a very good operating margin on sales. Uh, Number two, they generate a superior return on equity capital. And by superior, I'm talking at least late teens or 20s, 30s. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've even got one that does 60% return on equity. And they do this at both the average level, return on average equity, and the incremental level. In other words, the latest slug of capital that's gone into the business is firing in much the same way as the returns they're getting on the historic stock. So that's one of the things we look for. Can I just go back one step and say, just to make clear to people, that what you're doing, talking about is uh, running a portfolio of listed securities. You're not owning private businesses or anything like that. This is purely a fund that Correct. invests in, in uh, publicly quoted companies. But you're looking for those companies that have those characteristics. And I suppose one of the questions to ask is, how can it be possible to find these businesses on listed public markets when hundreds and thousands of investors are out there looking at them? Can they not see the same thing that you're seeing? Obviously not. This whole system has been uh, refined over many years. I mean, it started off, uh, we go right back to the 1990s when I worked with a guy called Jeremy Utton on a publication called Analyst. And we really leaned into this whole methodology, uh, which we we discovered really through David Clark and Mary Buffett and their Buffettology books. And what Jerry and I did subsequently was we refined this 
and we, we started back testing. We looked at things that worked and didn't seem to work. So we, we kind of burnished the whole system. And that's something I carried on after, you know, the last 10 years when Jerry and I have, have not worked together. And that manifests itself in if you saw the back end of my model and the sheaf of about 150 key ratios, some financial, some operating, that come out on every company. That's where the proprietary bit lies. Uh, and there's nobody else out there who's using this, this sheaf of ratios and key KFIs because uh, quite simply, it's being put together in a proprietary way. Right. So I've known you for a number of years. So if I can say this in, in a polite way, you are a committed number cruncher. And indeed, your uh, your book buffer, um, about Buffetology is uh, called Invest with the Best is actually a sort of manual of how to do it. But um, it would take an awful lot of work to uh, to get to the level of detail and analysis that uh, that you do. So, uh, are you continuing to improve the model, or is it something that you've now got pretty much fixed? No, that's an interesting question because it, it still does. I mean, the model is basically fixed, but but uh, with certain types of business, it allows you to uh, monitor how they're doing, or you might look at a different ratio series of ratios that might be more pertinent to a, a given shape of business. A great example would be Games Workshop, which we own. We've owned right from the off. Um, that was a business that was trying desperately to uh, reduce its operating lease rentals to move from prime site stores to secondary site stores. It was, it was transitioning to one manager operated businesses. And you could read in the report that, you know, they, they felt they were making progress. But the reality is, if you then went to the statistics and you looked at operating lease rentals per store over this time, and you looked at staff cost to sales, you saw that both were coming down very nicely in a straight line year after year after year. Meanwhile, sales per employee and operating profit per employee were rising. So that's that little suite of four ratios told you perfectly well that management was executing on its strategy. And there are, there are a whole load of little tricks like this that you can play if you really know what you're looking for in the numbers and you have this sort of businessman's perspective of investing. You know, as you're aware, I've set up businesses in the past and I've got Sanford Delan now. Um, having managed those businesses and run them makes me a much better investor. This is exactly what Buffett says about himself, and it's very true. I suppose one aspect of though, though, which uh, Buffett himself talks about uh, quite a lot, I mean, he's a great fan. He wants, he wants businesses with very good, uh, fantastic uh, economics and uh, return on capital and return on equity uh, characteristics, but he's also looking for exceptionally good managers. Now, when you're researching public listed companies, how much do you rely on your models and your analysis, and how much do you rely actually on meeting the management and forming a view about how competent they are? Both. The first stage is to run through these various things I look for. Incidentally, I should just mention that another thing is very strong free cash generation and strong balance sheets and businesses that, in my view, are predictable. So I can see where they're going to be in three, five, ten years' time. That's very important. But the glue that holds everything together, as you rightly say, is management quality. And the last part of the jigsaw, having done all the work on these businesses, built the models, decided it's a go or no-go, and it looks like a go, the last stage would be to, to meet the management. And there have been four instances in the six-and-a-half-year life of this fund where I've declined to invest when the numbers were telling me it looked like a good investment. Uh, but when I met the management, there were reasons why I didn't particularly like them, and I turned down the opportunity to invest. Now, the interesting thing is not one of those four 
has actually made a bad investment over time. But for me, you know, I want to sleep at night, Jonathan, and I just there was something about each tick management team that just didn't quite click with me, uh, so I turned it down. Another aspect of this kind of approach to investing, though, is that it actually limits you to the kinds of companies you can invest in. I mean, Buffett famously doesn't invest in technology companies because he says he doesn't understand them. Though um, he has recently bought some Amazon shares, I think, after about 15 years of saying no. He might have been one of the other two investment managers who actually made that decision. He has got other fund managers these days making, you're quite right, making decisions for him. But the point I was making that as far as your fund is concerned, you also, there are a number of sectors in the in the UK market at least where you don't tend to uh, find investments that you can either analyse in the way you want to or find satisfactory uh, results. That's right, is it not? That's absolutely correct. I mean, you know, I will not go near something if I don't understand how it makes it, its money. So I've got to understand the revenue model, the business model, and indeed the industry. And if I don't, I'll, I'll eschew the opportunity. And to give you specific examples, you will never catch me anywhere near Blue Sky Farmer. You know, I'm not Neil Woodford. I don't understand this thing. Uh, you will not catch me near holes in the ground miners. You will not catch me near oil and gas exploration. And you will not get catch me near banks. Uh, the latter, because if you strip out the typical 10 times leverage and look at the return on equity deleveraged, it's awful. So these are not businesses that I, I particularly want to own. But the corollary of that, of course, is that if you're running a fund, I mean, your fund, I, I hope I can say without fear of being accused of uh, sort of buttering you up, but I mean, your fund has actually outperformed the market for the last five years, I think, uh, each year. But there will be years when you won't be able to do that because the market will be led up or down by some of these sectors, you know, banks, oil and gas, mm. mining. They are big parts of the index, at least in uh, in the UK. Uh, and therefore, as a fund, you're some years you're, just, you're bound to underperform, are you not? Well, you'd think so. I mean, last year was one like that. 2016 was it was a year where, um, you know, the sectors I'm not involved with uh, were very strong. Fortunately, the sectors that were weak, like retailing, I didn't have too much exposure to. I've used this system prior to setting up the fund. I've used it for 11 years managing my own investments, albeit on a slightly more concentrated portfolio. And what you say there was absolutely true in that, you know, you would see eight of the 11 years the fund beat the market and three of the years it, it failed to beat the market. But um, that, that just goes with the course. You know, if you want to perform in line with the market, just go and buy an index tracker. Um, if you want something special, find a manager who knows what he's doing and uh, stick with that. So if I ask you this question, then how, uh, if you look at your portfolio, it has typically has, I think, 30, 35 stocks in it, something like that? Yeah, it's been 25 to 30. 25 to 30, I'm sorry, yeah, 25 to 30 stocks. Okay, now in any given year, how many of those would you expect to be doing better than the market and how many would you expect to, to be lagging the market? There'll always be some, of course, I'm sure, but uh, can you give me any kind of help on that, that kind of dimension? I think we've probably enjoyed about two-thirds outperforming, one-third underperforming across the piece over this time, um, except for one year, which was just exceptional. That was uh, 2015 when we were the top-performing fund in, in the old company's index. And on that occasion, I mean, virtually everything pulled its weight. Uh, it was just an exceptionally good year. But I mean, one of the one of the features of this fund is that I don't trade. I don't trade at all. I mean, the portfolio turnover typically is, is well below 10%. And on a moving average over the last 12 months, it's about 7% currently. Of the companies that we put in the fund at the start, 67% of them remain. We've, we've lost some, some by choice and three by takeover. 
a typical year will see me lose two, one by takeover, one by choice, and replace it with two or maybe three um, companies. So there, there is very little portfolio activity goes on in this fund other than when there's an opportunity to buy more of what we already own and we've got inflows, which we, which have been quite strong incidentally, um, then we will choose to you know, pull the trigger on the gun and, and invest more. But the default is always to try and buy more of what we already know and love uh, rather than be desperate to find new situations to put money in. Yes, I was going to ask you about the impact of inflows because, as you say, your fund has had num a bit of publicity and its performance has been strong. So you have had, in proportionate terms at least, some very significant inflows. I think um, I saw in a sort of six-month period you got something like a third extra uh, in terms of you mm -hmm. know, value of assets. That puts quite a lot of pressure on you unless you can, as you say, simply top up the holdings you've got. But if you may already have a significant position in a small company, that may not be possible. So are you going to have problems with inflows if they continue at this rate in actually finding sensible ways to invest it rather than uh, than having to buy things at little higher prices than you'd like? It's something that uh, I monitor constantly um, because the key thing to me is always performance. I mean, bear in mind, every last drop of my money and my family's money is in this fund. We don't own direct equities. Uh, so performance to me is everything. It's my pension. And I've always said, if it ever gets to the point where I think the performance is being compromised by the size of the fund, then we'll soft close it to new entrants. Uh, my own feeling is, I mean, we're fine at 150. Well, we're 160 actually at the moment. We'll be fine at 250. I have it in the back of my mind that things could start to get difficult as we approach 500, and that may well be the glass ceiling. But you're absolutely right as well about, you know, we do have some micro caps in there. And in three of the cases, uh, Driver Group, Bioventix, and Air Partner, we actually are declarable. Uh, my own feeling is I'd, I'd, I'd be perfectly happy owning 15% of, of a small company if it warranted it. Uh, as we grow, the, there will be a tendency, I think, to buy more mid-caps and, and 100 companies for the simple reason that on the watch list of 20 or so companies I have, they are very much skewed to the FTSE 350. So I think you know that's, that's where the opportunities, perhaps in the future, will lie to just expand the fund a little. Is that, when you say the opportunities are there, is that because valuations generally in that part of the market are particularly cheap at the moment, or is it just that those are the companies that um, you've been looking to buy into when you've had enough capital to deploy? They're the companies that have come through the whole business perspective investing process and come out the other side and said, yes, this is a business that I want to own. Unfortunately, at the time when the initial work was done and any subsequent work was done, um, the share price was not offering an opportunity to invest at what I believed was a sensible price. So rather than be gung-ho and think, I've done all this work, I must invest. No, that's not the way to do it. It goes on a watch list and we wait and we wait and we wait for either a market correction or we wait for something company-specific that I personally think is temporary and resolvable and then we'll pull the trigger on that. We found it easier initially to buy at the smaller end of the market quite simply because businesses are not so well covered. They're not so well researched there. And you do tend to find valuation anomalies perhaps more regularly than in companies that are crawled over by armies of analysts. I mean, as, as a house, 
we are really looking forward to MIFID too because we think there will be blood on the streets among the analyst community and we believe <laughs> coverage of companies will, will, will suffer, research coverage will suffer, which is great because we do all our own research in-house. So if there's less of them out there competing with us, that's good news for us. When you get a, a stock that doesn't perform well, and, and uh, in your most recent report you mention uh, four companies, I think, which um, haven't done so well, uh, and in a couple of cases, they've been they produced profit warnings, which have taken the market and, and disappointed the market, and presumably disappointed you too. Now, when that sort of thing happens, do you do you do you say to yourself, it was my analysis that was wrong, or do you say that's just one of the things that happens can happen in uh, in this kind of business? It's part of the course. A colloquial expression in business that says in business happens and it does and you get profits warnings they come with the turf the key thing about a profit warning to me is that it's an invitation to take action and that action should be either you build your holding further or you say bye bye so the first thing that you do is you reassess the entire situation when i do that if i think that the economics of the business have deteriorated or maybe the management has and and something's got worse and it ain't going to get better anytime soon that's a very good reason. That's cell discipline number one. Alternatively, it may be my fault. You know, I've made a mistake. I've misanalyzed something or I've, I've failed to take note of industry factors or disruptive technology. Who knows what? I've just done something wrong. Uh, and in that case, own up to it, clear the decks and try and learn from your mistakes. So they're the two reasons, you know, why I would choose to sell something. Uh, the fact there's been a profit warning alone is not a reason to sell something, I don't believe. I think it's a, re- a reason to reassess the situation and, and make a decision from there. Well, before we look at a couple of things which have done very well for you, can you just give me one example of a, of a company that has, has disappointed you and where you concluded perhaps that it was your own mistake rather than the market? What about Revolution Bars? That sounds like a, an interesting company. Tell me about that one. That was a bolt from the blue, that profit warning on that one. And it was it was one that came not long after we'd invested. The situation was quite interesting because the, the like-for-like sales were still positive. And in fact, they're more positive now than they were at the time they issued the warning. Uh, the gross margin was holding up nicely. So this was clearly not a failure of the business model. Uh, they were still selling drink across the counter and people were still quaffing it and buying food. Um, the problem came between the gross margin and the operating margin with operating costs, uh, where they totally failed to appreciate the impact of things like national living wage, minimum wage, business rates, etc. So it's actually operating costs of the business. It was a complete eye off the ball. And they'd had two finance directors, well, they were on the third in the space of 12 months. Uh, And it's my contention that management took its eye off the ball. You know, everybody else in that leisure space uh, was fully cognizant of these of these headwinds and had taken action to to defray them. Revolution Bars just got completely caught out. And I just felt at the time, this was an absolute classic case of management eye off the ball, get your act together or somebody will get it together for you. And of course, it looks like somebody's getting it together for them with the news that they've had an approach. They just got utterly bombed out by the market. I just love it when the market has a funk like that and it drives the share price down from over two quid to just over one quid. You know, it just gives you a wonderful opportunity to bang more into the portfolio and take advantage of Mr. Market's foolhardiness. And that's what you did, is it? Yeah. You put, you put more money in rather than, rather than uh, selling the shares. 
Yeah, absolutely right. And Excellent. I did it last summer with a business called Lavendon Group, which got subsequently taken over by Loxam SR, where, again, the market just had a complete funk on the company. The company was performing fine, but because HSS and Speedy Hire were warning, everybody thought, oh, Lavendon's the next one. My goodness, it was selling on a P of about six times, I reckoned, last summer. And we absolutely tanked up on that, thinking value would out. Never guessed it would out within four months with a contested bid. This is what happens sometimes. So let's look at a couple of other companies. There was the one that I think everybody is, uh, follows or aware of is uh, is Next. Uh, you said in your most recent report you were buying some shares. Now obviously Next has had a pretty traumatic uh, year, eighteen months or so. Traditionally, an extraordinarily well-run company uh, or believed to be. Um, did they take their eye off the ball, or did they have they just uh, run into some, you know, buffers in the consumer market that uh, they uh, have not been able to fully control? And and why are you buying them now rather than? Um, some other point. Right, okay. Well, you're quite right. It's one of the better run companies in this uh, in this country. I actually think Simon Wolfson is one of our best managers. Um, it's a business that's always going to be dictated to by fashion trends. You know, if you go back many years, it and Marks and Spencers have always been like two marathon runners, sort of, you know, one takes the lead and the other drops back and all the rest. But the, the real thing that struck me was here we had a business that it has a definite franchise. It is not a total bricks and mortar business. The internet side of it uh, with Next Directory is getting more and more part of the business. It also has a manager who traditionally at the start of each year um, manages expectations, puts, the, puts the, the gloomiest gloss on things, and he did exactly that this year. And we'd seen the share price come down from over £80 to around about £40 when I started getting really interested. At that point, even on reduced forecasts, it looked to be selling to me on a P of about 10, it's fully cash-backed earnings. You know, what you see in earnings, you, you get in free cash. So, in other words, a free cash flow yield of 10% or maybe a, a touch more. Uh, they said they were going to return surplus capital to shareholders, which is something I also like in my companies. Uh, and on the basis of what they were projecting, you look like you had about an 8% dividend yield in the first year. So, this is kind of more Ben Graham uh, approach that he was a business that was selling at, at a knockdown price where you know the valuation just looked compelling. The, the business was decent, but the valuation was compelling. Um, and I think subsequently, with what particularly Next have said within the last week or so, our thesis has been proved to be correct in that you know we are now getting numbers tickling up again as we get further and further into the year, which is kind of what I expected. I suppose the key question, and I'll answer it before you ask it, mm. is are you going to be in next five or ten years hence? Not sure we will be. Uh, you know, if next if next gets up to, I don't know, 60, 70, 80, back to its heyday, then that's a business that I think we might just say, well, yeah, we've had a good run in it. Um, it, was, it was a Ben Graham-type investment more than a Warren Buffett-type investment, at least Buffett in his current in incarnation. Uh, and we might just be inclined to let that one go. Right. But there are, as you said, uh, two-thirds of the stocks you own have been in the fund from the beginning, more or less. Um, tell me about a couple of those. Which ones have done uh, please you most? Uh, you've been running the fund since, what, 2011, is it? Something like that? Um, yeah, March 2011. Tell me about the ones that you're, you're sort of standout performers over that period. 
One which has only just become a standout performer is Games Workshop, uh, which I mentioned earlier in the conversation. I don't know if listeners will know about this, but basically Games is a, a, a fantasy wargaming business. They sell, they sell miniature figurines um, set in either a Tolkien-esque Warhammer world or a futuristic Warhammer 40k world. Uh, and they sell all the vehicles and the armor and they sell the, the scenery and the manuals to do the wargaming. And they have a ferociously loyal following, main, mainly male, well, I think all, probably exclusively male, yes. and late teens into their 30s. Um, and these people just spend their last dime on the hobby, as it's known. And I've described it as the nearest thing to legalized drug dealing on the stock market. I mean, talk about capturing a piece of people's minds. These these guys do it in spades. So it's a very, very, very strong franchise. And it's a business that, it, it's, it's a global business. So you won't be surprised to know it's benefited in the last 12 months from what's happened with Sterling. But even better than that, it's a business that protects its IPR and it has been exploiting its IPR ruthlessly with other people who use that content um, in media, for example. Uh, so royalty payments, which, as you know, have absolutely no fulfillment cost attached. I mean, it all drops through. Royalty payments have been climbing nicely. And this year, they've just announced that profits that were basically twice what their record profits in the past have been. And all the indications are that the current year is going to drive on from there. So this was a business that rewarded us handsomely for having the patience to buy it in the first place. I think it was about 370 we started to buy them. And last summer, we were still buying more at either side of £5. Um, the shares have now more than tripled in 12 months. There's about £16.20 or something today. And in the last 12 months, we've had 100 pence of dividends. So we were like, that's like a 20% dividend yield in the last 12 months. It's a classic example of a, of a strong business that was sorting out some problems it had and where patience rewarded the long-term investor. So you couldn't have, the point is you couldn't have anticipated exactly when it was going to come good, but uh, you have to have the patience and the confidence that your analysis was correct and uh, it will come good at some point in the future. You just don't know when, which is one of the reasons why you yeah. tend to hold things for quite a long time because you can never predict when that realization is, is going to happen. That's sort of key Buffett principle as well, I think. It is indeed. And, and the, the, the principle is that long term, there is a 100% correlation between the, the operating performance of the company and the performance of its stock price. The unknown is when it will happen. You can see things on the downside as well, you know, things that are going to go wrong, but you just don't know when it's going to happen. You know, if, if the methodology, the business perspective investing methodology is all about discipline, um, then the valuation and the portfolio construction and the holding on is all about patience. Right. And patience is something that is obviously quite uh, difficult to find in, in the market generally or in, amongst fund managers generally. Uh, they tend to be you know, live and die by their relatively short-term performance, for better or worse. It's, uh, that certainly seems to be the way things are going. I mean, you make a, a comment in your most recent uh, report about the fact that um, any company that issues any kind of profit warning or disappoints uh, against expectations tends to get punished very heavily uh, by the market. We've seen that in a number of uh, quite high-profile cases does that tell us anything about the, the absolute valuation of the market at the moment? 
I mean, it's not something you spend any time worrying about, but do you think it is indicative of a market that is, uh, in general, quite richly valued? Yes, I think that's, that's you can usually say that is a sign. It's a sign of a market that's probably going to go nowhere at best, go sideways for 12 or 18 months, or I say at best, I should say at worst. I mean, at best, it will correct by 15 20%, and we'll have a wonderful opportunity to put more money into it. But it is the case, I think, that... Uh, you know, a lot of valuations are pretty pretty full. I think what we've seen in the last perhaps six, 12 months is the market as a whole hasn't necessarily got more expensive. It has a little, but not a lot. But we've seen kind of a rotation into certain things. So, you know, you've had the miners and things going going stronger. You've had the anything facing the consumer going a lot weaker. So there's been like a fissure opened up in the market and some stuff has got a lot cheaper. And... <laughs> pleases me because by and large that's the sort of pond I want to fish in. I don't want to fish in the pond of the stocks that have been driving this market. But yeah, I think I think your your premise is is basically a good one and is probably right eighty, eighty plus percent of the time. We're coming to the end of this interesting conversation, but as you say, you're, you, you're really what you really want is a market correction so things get cheaper, the things you want to buy get cheaper. Um, but at the same time on your watch list, are you adding things to your watch list because uh, there are other opportunities emerging, or are you still trying to fulfill the, the watch list you have already? Well, the interesting thing is I've spent, I've spent the last two or three months going back to things that weren't necessarily on the watch list, but, but sort of failed slightly the tests, if you like, and revisiting them and just seeing if any of those were worth making it onto the watch list. And I'm afraid to say that from an operational perspective, none of them have made that hurdle onto the watch list. So... In the last, you know, the last few months, we've not added to anything on the watch list. We've got stuff sat there that's been sat there, well, for years, just waiting for the opportunity. And I'm afraid they're still sat there. So this is why you quite rightly say, I would love to see a, a, a decent market correction and a shakeout. It would, it would give me that opportunity. You know, we had it in 2014. In summer of 2014, I was 18% liquid in the fund. Uh, we had three flash crashes that year in, I think it was August, October and December, and we exited 2014 with 0.8% of the funding cash. It was a wonderful time to have lots of capital to deploy uh, when everybody around them you was losing their head. And I wouldn't mind another episode like that in the next 12 months. It would certainly help us. That's been fascinating to hear your thoughts on the market at the moment and on some of the things in your fund. Let's just go back to the, you know, the buffetology side of things and say, you you now spend some of your time in uh, in Florida, I believe, and that's where you why you named the management company the way you have. Have you been to uh, Warren Buffett's uh, annual meetings? Have you ever met the guy, or is it all taken from uh, what he says and has written? Interesting question. Uh, yes. Several times, I'm a regular pilgrim over to Omaha in, in April, May. Um, but the really interesting thing was when going right back to when Jeremy Utton and I first got interested in this methodology. Uh, the very first time we went over to Omaha, we actually had a two-on-two with Warren and Charlie because Debbie Basanek, who's Warren's secretary, thought we were journalists. And of course, yeah. as you know, he doesn't see analysts and fund managers, or he didn't in those days anyway. Uh, so we did actually meet them, not for a long time. I mean, we probably spent about 15, 20 minutes with them, uh, but it's nice bragging rights to have. Subsequently, we, we were at meetings where they were, but there were other people present as well. So the answer to both is yes. Both questions is yes. Well, I'm sure we can uh, compare notes on that uh one day, I, I was fortunate to go there, as I say, in a journalistic capacity. And um, as you say, it's much easier to meet and hear the guy that way um, 
because he loves talking to the media. <laughs> it does the business yes. a lot of good. Yeah. I suppose I have to end there with one one kind of slight caveat from him about, you know, he, he described to me, remember he described um, to me the business of fund management as 75% marketing and 25% performance, reflecting the fact that a lot of funds are, as we know, kind of sales-driven rather than uh, uh, driven by their performance. But um, you're not going to change your ways, I trust. You're going to stick to your simple methods and uh, keep toiling away at the spreadsheets. Remember what I said, performance is number one key. I've got all my money in this fund. Uh, that's the thing that drives me, not not gathering assets under management. Nothing will change. There will be no style drift, uh, none of that. There's no career risk. I'm not about to turn up on a Monday with a bin liner on my desk saying, you've underperformed the market for the last two quarters. Get out of here. That's what allows me to do something different. And, you know, as John Templeton said, if you want to get different results from the rest, you have to do something different from the rest. And it's so true and owning your own management company as well as managing the fund that sits under it uh, is a remarkably liberating feeling from this sort of regulatory overview looking at your volatility and your performance and all this sort of utter nonsense Uh, all that matters is get your investments right find the best companies park a decent amount of capital in them and then just sit with them forever and a day as long as nothing goes wrong and let compounding work its magic Well, Keith, that's a nicely put summary of your methodology, and I look forward to uh, talking to you again in the future and um, making sure that you are still doing what you're doing, which I'm sure you will, and if you do, it'll be uh, both of interest to everybody and I'm sure a great success for the fund. Thanks very much for, uh, for talking to us. We hope you enjoyed this Moneymakers podcast. Our podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on a variety of podcast channels including SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and also Share Radio's platform. The podcasts are free. If you want to find out more or listen to some of the earlier interviews in the series, please go to our website, www.money-makers.co, or follow us in future on any of the channels just mentioned. Thank you for listening.